0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Before today's conversation, I want to share just a couple of words with you about our terrific sponsor, BrainHQ. BrainHQ is an online training system with 26 exercises that hone your attention, memory, brain speed, and more. They really work. How do I know? Because researchers at institutions from the Mayo Clinic to Yale have studied them and shown real, measurable benefits to the brain, like 10 years improvement in memory. 10 years. Brain HQ adapts to your unique brain. As with physical exercise, brain exercise works best when it's at the right level to challenge you personally in the areas you need most. Brain HQ constantly adapts to your performance to make sure you're training at the optimum level for your brain. Now, you can get a 10% discount on a Brain HQ subscription for finding out about it here. Just go to brainhq.com politicalwire. Again, that's brainhq.com politicalwire. And now to today's conversation. For anyone who thought midterms 2014 was only about the Senate and which party will take control, well, we recently got our wake-up call. Congress has another chamber as well. You may have heard... House Majority Leader Eric Cantor lost his primary race to a Randolph-Macon college economics professor, David Bratt. And since that shock, the first primary challenger to beat a sitting House Majority Leader since the position began in 1899, the questions, politics, and outlook for this season have all changed. Should we be paying more attention to the House? Should we be paying more attention to the Tea Party? What can one congressional district in northeastern Virginia tell us about voter anger in America and voter action as November elections arrive? David Wasserman is U.S. House editor for the must-read Cook Political Report. He's also worked on numerous political campaigns, including in Iowa, South Dakota, and Virginia. David, thanks for joining me. This conversation was inspired, of course, by a piece you wrote the other day in 538, What Can We Learn from Eric Cantor's Defeat? Are you over the shock yet? I mean, can you believe that's a headline to something you wrote?
1: Well, this is the biggest shock that I've seen in seven years of covering house raises for the Cook Political Report. But if you piece it together in hindsight, it makes sense, right? We have tended to think think that these leaders in the House are more or less secure back home. And, uh, you know, if they're so powerful in the House, their voters back home should think that uh, that's a big asset and they'll keep them there automatically. But what we're seeing is that the long tenure in Congress uh, can be as much of a liability as it is um, a an asset that a leadership position in Congress can be a liability considering the approval rating of Congress. And we're seeing far more incumbents when underwhelming shares of their primary votes back home, um, predominantly Republicans. And we've seen a couple of close calls before this, and you factor in that Cantor was never entirely in sync with his home base. Uh, you know, he won re-election easily over the course of the last 14 years, but uh, that was mostly because he had extremely weak opposition. Uh, the last time he was really tested in primary before this was in the year 2000, when he won this House seat by just 263 votes in a Republican primary against an evangelical social conservative state senator, who uh, only spent about a quarter of what Cantor spent. So um, Cantor really excelled at the Washington game, uh, but not so much at the Richmond game.
0: You, you had gotten and you wrote about this. You'd gotten an email, uh, I guess, just a, a couple about a week and a half before uh, the election from uh, one of Cantor's uh, um, people, I guess, his deputy chief of staff. And, and it was kind of a, a quibble, I guess, was his word um, about a, a piece of analysis you had written In in, in retrospect. Um, that that quibble or that concern maybe might have turned you on to, to some additional thinking about that race. T- tell me about that exchange because it, you know it, it kind of gave a little bit of a window to, to those of us outside, you know, of, of you know just the kinds of communications that can occur, um, you know, in a race with the house staff, with someone in a position like yours where you know you, you 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 study this, you think about every house race, and and you know you then write about it for you know a, a must read publication. Um, tell me about that exchange and what you kind of thought at the time, what you learned about it, and what you thought more about it afterwards.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's not unusual to get very defensive emails from campaigns after we write a piece of analysis. And, you know, I interact with plenty of campaigns before and after I, I write analysis of House races. But coming from the, uh, the staff of the sitting House majority leader was something a little bit different. And you know, in retrospect, uh, the the people who were handling Cantor's operation in Washington really excelled at the policy angle. uh, But um, Cantor more or less outsourced much of the campaign to a consultant in Richmond uh, who was working on several campaigns at the time. In fact, that consultant in Richmond, Ray Allen, I had been in touch with him about um, Virginia's tenth district, Frank Wolf's open seat, Northern Virginia, uh, for some of the spring and it's possible that Cantor's campaign kind of took their eye off the ball. Now, I also think that Cantor faced a strategic fork in the road uh, when when Bratt was ramping up his campaign. Cantor knew Bratt wouldn't have much money to spend, but this is a dilemma for a lot of incumbents. Do they uh, try to kneecap their opponents early before they can get any traction whatsoever just to be on the safe side? Or do they run a you know, positive, above-the-fray campaign that deprives their opponent of any attention whatsoever? And you know what's fascinating is to contrast what John Boehner did in his primary in Ohio in May with what Cantor did in his primary in Virginia in June. Boehner chose to stay entirely above the fray, stay positive, show up at diners and shake hands, give speeches at a local chamber of commerce. He won his primary with 69%. Cantor chose to run a vicious campaign against Dave Brat at a time when voters didn't really know who Brat was. I think what it did was it generated curiosity about Brat. It, uh, it, it uh, kind of encouraged voters to look into whether these attacks were were real, uh, because if Cantor was taken seriously, it seemed to voters as if, as, as if Brat must be a serious candidate. So, um, you know, I think that decision will clearly come back to haunt Cantor And some campaigns have have kind of preempted their challenges effectively when they've had effective opposition research. But the fact is Cantor's campaign was really stretching it by calling Brad a liberal college professor, and voters saw through it.
0: And when you think about tactics like that, how much can you or or should you separate, or can, can the tactic be separated from the candidate him or herself. So Cantor's kind of being outside of the district and lobbing in, you know, these, the, you know, these criticism bombs, some of which, as you just pointed out, turned out to be incorrect. Versus a bane, or you know, going to the diner, same diner he goes to as you wrote about. Every you know, he, he, it's his it's his diner, and his loyalty to the diner, you know, mir- mirrors his loyalty to the district in a way. Those aren't your exact words, but that's kind of the, the sense I got of the the metaphor as as you were writing it. Um, can you separate the tactic from the politician? Was was this tactic kind of intrinsic to who Cantor is, or or just you know just bad political strategy
1: well I think Cantor uh, knows that, that uh, you know he, he needed to be very aggressive to win a leadership position in the house that he needed to play hardball but sometimes what what primaries require is a soft touch and uh, you know, certainly voters in Virginia 7 were angry with Washington But at the same time, there were plenty of voters who just wanted some reassurance that Cantor still cared about them. Uh, This is where I think Boehner was very effective, even though it can be argued Boehner is not quite as conservative as Cantor over the course of of their uh, time together in the House. Uh, But uh, Cantor essentially blew the layup here, and uh, I think all he really would have needed to do uh, is to... uh, reassure voters that he was, he was fighting against Obama, uh, but not in necessarily an over the top way. And, you know, just hire some, some, um, maybe, maybe, you know, straight out of college kids to go around to, to, to tea party events or other events in the district and kind of be Cantor's eyes and ears and ask people what they think of, of how he's doing in Washington. Um, you know showing up really is half the battle and and i I don't sense that that cantor's team uh was was really extending their tentacles into the district at a at a micro level
0: so let's move this uh a little more broadly, and and you know, see what what we can learn, kind of more broadly from the Cantor experience, and 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 taking it outside of there. One area that you wrote about, you kind of gave your your seven dissections, I'm calling them, of of what occurred, and and a couple of them really stood out for me. One of them it was was the first one, which is this: the focus on public uh, disgust and and the disgust with Congress. I mean, I got to tell you, me personally, there there are a couple of things that I'm really worried about. Um, this public disgust is one of them, and it's really tied to um, the, the lack of trust that's occurring right now with politicians, with government, with our institutions in general. On the disgust front, you, you wrote about the key Gallup questions. Would you reelect your own congressperson, and do most members of Congress Deserve to be reelected. I mean, this is this age old question and, and, and kind of age old fact. You know, we in America, we, we hate Congress, but we love our own congressman or congresswoman. This is a trend. That's a trend um, that you note might be shifting. We might now not only dislike Congress, we might dislike uh, our own fellow or our own uh, uh, female congressperson as well. Isn't that right?
1: Right. That's correct. And uh, this is a big, um, Big dilemma for for a lot of members of Congress because it's tougher than ever for them to establish their own brand as something separate from the institution of Congress as a whole. Voters feel feel very disconnected from from Congress. They feel like they're being represented well by neither party. And so an increasing number are calling themselves independents. And then you've got, particularly on the Republican side, uh, a lot of very conservative voters who aren't really identifying with the Republican Party anymore because they believe that the Republican Party hasn't fought Obama hard enough that they've caved on a variety of issues uh, and and so you're seeing these voters react and take out their anger in these primary settings uh, and you know we we've seen a number of Republican incumbents who won their primaries with less than sixty percent of the vote who are getting very weak showings, and even the week before the primary. Um, in Virginia, Leonard Lance in New Jersey only won re renomination with 54% of the votes. So um, I think voters uh, tend to tune into these primaries late. Um, they're very volatile. It's hard to predict the turnout. Uh, and I think what this primary in Virginia 7 really does is, is uh, uh, put, puts on a chill for, for other House Republicans Um, not only on immigration, but on a whole host of of issues. I I think it essentially means you're not going to see any big-ticket legislation come out of the House that could potentially be signed by President Obama uh, unless there's an
0: absolute crisis but it, But, in terms of the makeup of Congress and in terms of of elections and results like this, I mean there has to be some price to be paid for um, the disgust that people feel uh, with congress and, and and I mean, you wrote about it there was also i saw i 'm sure you saw it as well um, incredible result from another Gallup poll uh, just last week that seven um, percent i think it is of Americans have uh, confidence. Uh, in In Congress, the Gallup reported that american 's current confidence in Congress is not only the lowest on record but also the lowest i 'm quoting them, but also the lowest Gallup has recorded for any institution in the forty one year trend i mean that 's just an amazing, powerful statement about how you know frustrated uh, Americans are um, and many folks are with with government and with congress i mean there 's got to be a price to be paid for that and and is is cantor 's election? The first is that kind of a, 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 the tip of, of what might occur and um, this price to be paid?
1: Well, uh, first of all, Cantor uh, isn't the same as, as other members of Congress running for re election. I think his leadership position really made him uniquely vulnerable as a symbol of Congress. Uh, that said, um, there are there are others who have served for a long time who are at risk of falling uh, thanks to that sentiment and we're certainly watching uh, what's going on in Mississippi and New York. Um, there are uh, a number of other primaries uh, still to be decided in August that uh, I could feature uh, some incumbents going down. but what's what's amazing is that, Uh, not many incumbents are really paying a price for that in November general election. Those elections tend to be decided on an extremely partisan basis. And as much as voters hate Congress, they still tend to go to the polls in November with an attitude of sticking it to the other party or voting against the party they believe is to blame the most. Uh, And so that doesn't tend to produce a whole lot of partisan change. I think we're going to see a single-digit shift in the House, probably in the Republican direction in November.
0: David, I want to ask you more about the race. I want to ask you more about the point you raised that, that your Republicans might be getting, might get punished around uh, the, the idea that they haven't fought Obama hard enough. I want to ask you about what can actually get done now in Congress in um, the Tea Party uh, and the establishment split in the Republican Party. Um, but first, I, I want to share with our, our listeners just a couple of words about our terrific sponsor, Stamps.com. I know it's tough deciding where to focus your resources to grow your business, but one thing... I I can tell you, you don't need to waste valuable time going to the post office for mailing and shipping. Just use stamps.com to access all the services of the post office right from your desk 24 seven with stamps.com. You can buy and print official U S postage using your own computer and printer, get postage for any letter or package, any class of mail, all for just the fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. With Stamps.com, you'll never have to go to the post office again, so you can spend your time where it matters most, focused on your business. We use Stamps.com at Political Wire for just that reason, to focus on growing our business. Right now, use my promo code WIRE for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial. Plus, there's a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WIRE, W-I-R-E. That's Stamps.com, enter WIRE. David, did Eric Cantor get punished for working, uh, for trying to work too much with democrats and if so is there any hope for legislation um maybe not even just the rest of 2014 but but you know until we get this 2016 thing figured out you know what 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 hope is there for progress
1: so the second question first i i don't really think there is much hope for progress on big piece of legislation you know everyone thinks of immigration reform but they're many other issues that used to be relatively straightforward that have devolved into bitter partisan fights and uh, I don't think you're going to see a lot of progress for not only the rest of this year but the rest of this administration. The House doesn't look like it's going to leave Republican hands uh, after this November. Then uh, to your other question, you can look at this as an arc that kind of led from from the government shutdown until now, right? In mid 2013, John Boehner was in a real bind. He was facing a freshman and sophomore insurrection within his own party from members who wanted to tie funding the government to uh, defunding or repealing the ACA. And of course, you know Boehner knew that that was politically disastrous, but he. he faced a mutiny if he didn't go down that road, so we had a government shutdown for 16 days. I think what the end of the shutdown really did is it broke the will of the Tea Party wing of House Republicans, and for a temporary period, there was uh, some incentive to, to compromise. We saw Patty Murray and Paul Ryan come together on a deal uh, to offset parts of sequestration. We saw the House and Senate pass a five-year farm bill. We saw uh, the House and Senate come together on a bipartisan basis to pass a regular appropriations bill. We even saw House Republicans flirting with immigration reform. And so I think in a way it was as if Congress had had hit rock bottom and gone to rehab. And what what that really did, I think it, it kind of lulled some leaders in the House into thinking that, that this Tea Party insurrection was was more or less impotent. Uh, and I think that, that brought us to the place where, where uh, where Eric Cantor was on election night. And, of course, I think now uh, the pendulum has kind of swung back in the other direction, House Republicans being very fearful uh, to work with Democrats on anything.
0: And is it a question of Tea Party power perhaps during the primary season? There was a a terrific piece um, in the upshot of The New York Times Um, Just just today, in fact, and and about, and I guess they did a poll on popularity of the Tea Party. It shows that kind of overall popularity of the Tea Party is, you know, kind of no greater and maybe you know not too much less than than it's ever been over the last couple of years. It kind of hovers in that uh, twenty to twenty five, maybe thirty percent zone um, approval. Uh, um, uh, and I, I'm forgetting whether that's just among Republicans, but but it's kind of been in the same zone. Where it does gain popularity um, is around the primary season, and, and they ran a, a terrific quote from a, a Harvard professor who said, the Tea Party isn't about popularity, it's about leverage. And while they're not – uh, popular, they've still got a lot of leverage because they participate. They are good citizens who are paying attention. They are revved up. They turn out to vote. Is that, you know, I, I thought that was just a terrific analysis of how, um, you know, and, and to their credit, look, at you know, if if you get involved in, in the democracy, uh, maybe you can make a difference. Is, is that a little bit of what we're seeing?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, you know, when you examine who's most motivated to show up, it's definitely people who are angry with the status quo rather than people who are happy. Uh, that's, that's really the challenge for people like Eric Cantor is how do you get people who are happy with your leadership to turn out? Uh, because because let's face it, anger is a stronger motivator than one. So, um, um this, this isn't the only surprise that we're, we're going to see this year even though it's probably the biggest. And, uh, you know that's what keeps politics fun. If if we weren't uh, surprised from time to time, then uh, then what would we be here for, right?
0: It, it, what do you hear from from Republicans? I mean, on any level, do they see themselves in a bit of a pickle on this? I mean, you, you've got a, you've got the strong disgust. You've got Americans wanting, to a great extent, some type of, I don't know if it's necessarily compromise, but certainly movement, progress. I mean, you see the numbers. You see, you know, Americans want some type, for example, some type of immigration reform. Fine. So you've got that pressure on one side. And then on the other side, Republicans have this pressure of Tea Partiers who don't want that, don't want compromise, don't want working with Democrats, don't want more government. And they are willing and able to get really active in the primary season, even if they can't necessarily. Necessarily, because of the numbers in the in the you know full election season in, in November. I mean, do you as you're talking to Republicans, are they thinking, or talking, or worrying about that pressure and those kind of competing forces in new ways now? Since Cantor, I mean, this is not a, a, a new challenge for them, but but maybe they had hoped it had gone away a little bit, and now all of a sudden it, it's back. Or are you hearing them talk at all about this? Well, you know. I,
1: it's interesting because it used to be that
0: the average House
1: Republican would feel some pressure from uh, the general election and some pressure from the primary. They kind of had to find a way to thread the needle and please both uh, those voters who would participate in the primaries, but also um, you know, not go so far right that they'd risk losing in November. And what we found in recent years is that it's, Really gone all the way uh, to, to the primary. Sh- that, that focus has really shifted uh, to the primary, which has obviously led to a record high in terms of party discipline. When you consider that over eighty percent of House seats are more or less decided by the time the November general election rolls around, thanks to the self-sorting that we've seen across the country and the redistricting that's compounded that, uh, it's it's really uh, quite staggering. Uh, but House Republicans, increasingly, if there's any pressure. To 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 take a position that would go against the grain of their primary base, it's pressure from the business community, not pressure from Democrats in their district, uh, and and that has really uh, I th- I think uh, carved carved open this huge fissure in the Republican Party between. Um, business interests that, that want to see a debt ceiling increase without controversy to keep the full faith and credit of the country intact. Uh, they want to see immigration reform so that they can get more high-skilled workers. Uh, they uh, you know, are, are in favor of the party kind of modernizing some of its positions on social issues. So that's all contrary to what the primary base wants, and that battle is happening entirely within the Republican Party rather than kind of across party lines in these districts. That's why we're seeing uh, this uptick in in primary competition in House races.
0: And do you see any signs of the direction and and where Republicans will go, anything around the uh, um, election for the new House leader, uh, McCarthy? Is that anything there that you see um, in terms of, you know, the direction that uh, the House will go and that House Republicans will go?
1: Well, you know, I think what McCarthy's election and to some extent what Scalise's election as uh, House Majority Whip show uh, is that House Republicans uh, include a lot of, of Tea Party types who make a lot of noise, but don't necessarily want to lead. They don't want the responsibility for governing when it really comes down to it. And, you know, I think a third of, the, of House Republicans really are these these really rock-ribbed conservatives who don't want to vote for, for any bipartisan piece of legislation uh, that's going to get them in trouble back home. A third of, of them um, really do have an appetite to do something big on immigration reform, uh, and potentially other issues. And then a third in the middle, um, they secretly do want House Republicans to address immigration and other big-ticket items, but uh, they do not want the responsibility of voting for them. They don't want to, um, to jeopardize their, their standing in a primary back home. So there, I, I think when you add together the, the, uh, the latter two wings, the the latter two thirds of, of House Republicans that adds up to the type of coalition that wants Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise in leadership uh, to kind of stay, you know stay a steady course rather than rock the boat.
0: And just to close out, David, uh, I'll close out with, uh, you know, the, one of the lines, one of the areas that you closed out your piece with, um, which was that uh, Cancer's loss proves there are limits to strictly data-driven election predictions. You were talking about some of the reporting that had gone on or hadn't gone on, and, and these data-driven uh, election predictions. Now, uh, I, I say this only slightly tongue-in-cheek. tongue-in-cheek. You, you realize that you were writing for 538 when you, you know, raised the questions of data-driven election right. predictions. Right. Were you waiting for that line to get edited?
1: Uh, it's funny you should ask that, and you're very perceptive. Uh, uh, that was a big point of contention in the editing process of the piece. Uh, I think uh, there were cer- certain elements of 538 that did not want uh, want that line in there. But let's face it, um, I, I think I think data-driven reporting and and shoe leather, ground-level reporting need to go hand-in-hand. One cannot entirely explain what's happening in politics without the other and um, i i think you know, what editors at 538 tried to tried to say was that uh you know i might be setting up a false dichotomy by saying that but guess what um when it comes down to it shoe leather reporting really did win this round in, in virginia seven and what happened to eric Cantor, and there's no getting around that um and so i i'm, I'm Skeptical of, of any website that is going to put together a statistical model of what's going to happen, without actually talking to um, to, to politicians. And you know, frankly, that is is um, part of the reason why um, I do enjoy having kind of a foot in in, in both sides uh, of, of of that media environment. Uh, I do enjoy meeting with candidates and covering races at a granular level for the Cook Report. Although I'll be the first to admit that. Um, I, I should have gone to Richmond uh, in the final month before before Eric Harris primary. Um, but I also enjoy writing for uh, for a site that I think does does really thorough data analysis uh, and and uh, um, data driven political prediction in 538. So um, I'm I'm very happy to 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 have those opportunities.
0: Well, you, you outlined that balance very well, and I, I did, I mean, I did note the line, and it, uh, did kind of strike me, and listen, credit to them for, uh, running it, um, and, sure. and for, you know, you, you putting, you know, it's under your byline, and, and putting it out there, so, uh, right. Um, credit to them for, for keeping it in. Uh, David Wasserman, U.S. House editor for the uh, Cook Political Report, uh, always focused on uh, whatever one needs to know about what is happening or is going to happen in the U.S. House of Representatives. David, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.